0: time for legally speaking with michael mulligan barrister and solicitor with mulligan defense lawyers michael how are we doing i'm doing great always good to be here lots of interesting things on the agenda to talk about this week what's up first
1: that's for sure um i, I thought i should just mention at the outset of course there's been all the discussion about that uh, bank robbery the other day and yeah. that, uh a gun battle that ensued um and uh the, uh, the history in Victoria actually includes—I don't know if uh, listeners can recall this—but from back in 1999 uh, in Victoria, we had another notorious bank robbery that involved a shootout or shooting at uh, police in Victoria. Yeah, um, and back in 1999, uh, that was Stephen Reed, right? Yes, Who was, yep. uh, uh, had some notoriety from um, writing a, a book about his. Uh, a sort of a semi-autobiographical semi-auto- book about his involvement with the Stopwatch Gang, a group that had apparently engaged in some hundred plus uh, highly organized bank robberies uh, during the 1970s, netting millions of dollars. Um, and then, uh, back in 1999, uh, he was involved in the robbery of a uh, bank in uh, James Bay. Uh, I believe it was James Bay. Uh, And then there was a uh, chase of Mr. Reed uh, and uh, police officer Bill Trudeau with uh, Victoria Police Mm -hmm. wound up uh, chasing him as he was firing at at, uh, 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 Bill Trudeau and a bystander with a shotgun. Yeah, they went through Beacon Uh, Hill Park. I remember that. That's right. Yeah. And then eventually he broke into the home of a James Bay couple and took them hostage and was eventually uh, arrested later that night. Um, he was convicted of um, attempted murder and he got a eighteen year sentence uh, and uh, passed away at age sixty eight uh, back in twenty eighteen uh Bill Trudeau, for his uh, part uh, wound up uh, receiving uh, an award of valor uh, for his efforts uh, pursuing uh, Mr. Reed while being shot at uh, with a shotgun uh, and so these things don't happen frequently happily uh but uh you know victoria isn't a complete stranger to uh this sort of uh, violent uh activity uh and uh you know we'll of course watch with interest uh what happens here and, and hopefully of course the uh, officers that are still recovering um are okay you know some of them are still in hospital yeah. um and uh you know we should all be very thankful for what uh, uh what they did in the uh uh, harm uh, caused to them and the risk they put themselves at uh, in responding to this and that does happen from time to time uh, and uh, you know that was one of the last uh, notorious uh, uh, bank robberies in victoria that involved uh, shooting at uh, at police yeah in terms of uh,
0: legal affairs issues on the agenda this week i do have it in front of me here are we still going to do that
1: Yes. Um, so first one I, first one I had on my uh, on the agenda was a case that uh, came out of the Highlands. Yes. Um, and yeah. uh, probably a topic that uh, would arise for people uh, at this time of the year, uh, which was a dispute arising over uh, work done on a uh, a deck. Right. I'm sure a lot of us uh, enjoy spending times on the time on the back deck as the sunny weather comes out. Um, and this case is a bit of a cautionary tale. Uh, the background of it was that. Uh, 25-plus years ago, the uh, plaintiff eventually in the case uh, built a home out in the Highlands um, and uh, eventually moved in with his family uh, after having obtained a temporary occupancy permit uh, but never had a final inspection done in his house. Uh, and then after 25 years, his wife had sadly passed away and his kids had moved out and the uh, plaintiff decided he wanted to sell the house. Uh, but to do that, he needed to get some things fixed up. Uh, and he hired a contractor. Uh, to do some work on the house, including replacing some decks and some other cosmetic work, Uh, but also to include work he wanted to replace just the surface of the main deck in the house. And he wanted to do that to uh, try to, I think, save some money because he's planning to sell the house. So he didn't want to have the entire thing rebuilt. So the contractor uh, spent several days and uh, rebuilt various things and then replaced the Uh, just the surface of the uh, uh, main deck in the house. Uh, And in fact, he says he pointed out to the owner that, hey, the underside of this thing is pretty rotten, uh, but nonetheless carried on and did what he said he was told to do and replaced just the top decking. Uh, Then the house got listed for sale, and of course, what happens next? Building inspector (laughs) shows up and has a look at everything. uh, And uh, building inspector notes that, uh, the underside of the main deck is completely rotten and the thing's unsafe, and then notices some other uh, bits and pieces that require work. Uh, and so the homeowner plaintiff uh, uh, blames the contractor and says, Hey, you should have uh, replaced this whole deck. It was rotten, not just on the top, which is what I asked you to do. Uh, and so on that basis, this thing wound up in court. And so the judge had to sort out what obligation did the uh, contractor have, right? Should the contractor have done um, something more uh, in terms of uh, replacing the rotten underside of the main deck in the house? Um, And the contractor's perspective was, hey, I wasn't asked to do that. I was just hired to replace the top of it. Uh, And I pointed out that the bottom was rotten, but, you know, how is that my responsibility? Uh, ultimately the homeowner wound up spending, I think, in excess of $50,000 having to replace, you know, the underside of the deck in order to get the building inspection to sell his house. Um, And the judge ultimately, and this was interesting, found that even though the homeowner had only asked this contractor to do the top of the deck, the uh, judge found that the contractor did have an obligation uh, to uh, make sure that this person uh, replace the balance of it, and not just uh, screwing the top on uh, the new top onto a bunch of rotten wood underneath. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, the contractor shouldn't have been shouldn't be responsible for the entire cost of rebuilding the man's deck. Um, but instead, uh, the judge found that the uh, contractor was responsible for. Uh, the extra work that was required and some of the wasted uh, wood decking that couldn't be salvaged when the uh, bottom was all rebuilt. And so, after a three day trial, the net result is that the uh, homeowner was awarded some $5,000 in Supreme Court um, for uh, some of the uh, uh, work that had to be done to get things up to snuff and for some of the extra work required because the contractor hadn't in- insisted upon redoing the bottom. Uh, and so, Ultimately, I suspect uh, that the cost of hiring a lawyer to spend three days in court arguing about the deck is likely to have cost more than $5,000. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the side legal note if you sue somebody in Supreme Court, right, uh, and you wind up with an award that should have been in small claims court, which is where a $5,000 uh, award should have been. Presumptively, you don't get any costs awarded for you. Uh, And so that can make a big difference when you've had to spend or hire a lawyer to spend three days in court arguing about your deck repair. And so takeaways here for people would include, first of all, get it in writing, right? So we don't have a dispute about what was the oral agreement. Second of all, bear in mind, if you're somebody who is the contractor, you're being relied upon, right, to some extent for sort of advice and what you're doing. It won't necessarily be a defense that so you just say, well, he told me to screw it onto to the <laughs> rotten wood, so off I went, right? Uh, there can be some obligation to do more. Uh, and then uh, finally, bear in mind, uh, you know, think carefully about uh, how much you might get at the end of the day, uh, lest you spend more litigating uh, your deck dispute. Uh, that probably could have been avoided had you gotten it in writing and so forth, uh, then uh, uh, then you might be awarded. So it's the uh, case of the uh, rotten deck, and uh, probably uh, something that uh, many people are contemplating now as the uh, weather looks warm, and uh, we'd like a uh, relaxing place to sit and enjoy it.
0: Always good advice. We will take a quick break. Coming up next, Legally Speaking, we'll continue with Michael Mulligan. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defence Lawyers as we continue. Another example, Michael, of why every person
1: should have a will. Yes, indeed. Uh, That is really important advice and to keep it updated. Um, And uh, this case, uh, which just came out, is from the B.C. Court of Appeal, just released. And it's an example of the sort of thing which can occur uh, when somebody passes away and doesn't have a proper will. Uh, the background here is that the woman who passed away in 2016 uh, had been uh, married back in the 70s uh, but got divorced in the 80s. Uh, however, she maintained a good relationship with her uh, ex-spouse. They would uh, you know, go for meals and spend time together. Um, uh, and uh, then back in uh, uh, 2001, uh, she created what was referred to as a testamentary document which was a thing that didn't you know didn't meet all the requirements of a will but she was specifying what she wanted to happen to her possessions Um, and she uh, referred to her ex-husband and said she wanted to give uh, a good share of it to him because they had a good ongoing relationship. Uh, Then flash forward a number of years uh, and the woman had uh, entered into a new relationship uh, back in 2013 Uh, until uh, she eventually passed away in 2016. Um, And so uh, when she passed away you had this testamentary document from 2001 uh, referencing the ex-husband and then you had the new partner uh, who had been living with her for the preceding three years. Uh, And so both the new partner uh, and the ex-husband from uh, many years ago with whom she maintained a good relationship uh, showed up uh, at the co- their respective courthouses and got orders to, in the case of the current partner, administer her estate on the basis that she had died without a will. Uh, and on the basis of the ex-husband, hey, I'm the uh, person in charge of this. She was leaving things to me, right? And so off they go in litigation. Um, and at trial, uh, the judge found that the ex-husband uh, didn't uh, have a uh, a good claim uh, because in uh, several years after the woman had uh, written out this testamentary document saying she wanted to leave things to him, um, she had created another document where she revoked all prior wills and, and so forth. And so that was the end of the claim for the ex-husband. But that wasn't the end of the matter uh, because the judge at trial uh, did an analysis of the relationship that the woman had uh, with her new partner. Uh, and the way that works is under the Wills of States and Succession Act, WESA, uh, there's a provision that if somebody is in a marriage-like relationship, that's language used, yeah. with somebody for a period of two, for the two years prior to their passing, uh, then that person would be dealt with as a spouse, right? Yes. And the idea under the Wills, Estates, and Succession Act is that if somebody passes away and they have no will, the starting point is that all of their assets would be transferred to their spouse, right? Sort of the uh, that uh, that act, the Wills, Estates, and Succession Act, I think is is designed with sort of default outcomes uh, for people's uh, assets where there's no will right, sort of as, well, what do we assume they would have wanted, I suppose. Um, And in this case, there was a substantial uh, estate. The the woman owned a a home in West Vancouver uh, that after the uh, mortgage might have been worth something in the order of a million dollars. So there's a fair bit of money there. Yeah. Uh, And um, so the Will Succession Act, as this default provision, goes to the spouse. But if no spouse, then there's sort of a list of down the rung of family members, starting with parents. Uh, and so the judge at the original trial went through this sort of checklist of things to try to determine, was this new fellow uh, in a marriage-like relationship with the woman who passed away? Hmm. Uh, and there are a whole bunch of things for the judge to think about, so it could be unclear what the outcome should be. And the judge in this case sort of went through with a tick list of things that came from, you know, previous cases and so on. And the judge had focused on the fact that uh, even though the new person, they'd shared a bed together and uh, that, uh, you know, he'd taken her to hundreds of medical appointments and did the grocery shopping, lived together, had meals together, celebrated events together. All these things that you would expect in a uh, relationship mm-hmm. uh, that there was uh, little or no conjugal activity. Hmm. And really focused on that hmm. and then sort of weighed up this person's claim and, and sort of the relationship of this person and the friendly ex-husband and found that this man, despite all these activities, didn't have a marriage-like relationship. The result of that is that the woman's estate would pass to her mother. Uh, the mother, sadly, herself passed away <laughs> right during that trial. And so the net result is then her estate would have gone to her siblings, Right. Yeah. And so none of this may have been what the woman had wanted to have happened to her um, estate. Right. Uh, and so the matter then wound up going off to the Court of Appeal, which, again, is an example of what happens when there's ambiguity and no will and various people who think they might have some entitlement. Um, and the Court of Appeal decision, which just came out, um, looked at how the trial judge had approached that issue of whether there was a marriage like relationship. Mm. Um, and. One of the key points that the Court of Appeal made is that judges shouldn't approach it as sort of a a checklist of factors. Uh, And the Court of Appeal pointed out that there's a large diversity uh, of relationships that people have, and they're not all the same, and you shouldn't focus on sort of, you know, add up the tick marks on one side or the other. Um, And found that the judge had placed undue weight uh, on conjugal relations and instead um, should have focused on the other things which I mentioned, right? All, you know, they shared a bed together, they had meals together, they spent, uh, you know, uh, celebrated holidays together. Yes, you know, all the kinds of things you would expect in a relationship, and there just shouldn't have been an undue focus on that one element of it. Um, and so, the court of appeal reversed the decision that the trial judge had come to, uh, and found that indeed, and the key there, the other key was that. The Court of Appeals said, look, you're supposed to look at that two years prior to the person's passing. It's not a matter of trying to analyze what was going on six years ago or, you know, was there, what was the relationship like with the ex-husband and how did that compare, right? It's focusing on that period of time. And here, the relationship with the new partner had been um, from 2013 until 2016 when she passed away and so found that, yes, indeed, this was a marriage-like relationship. And the result is that because there is no other valid will, uh, her partner at the time of her passing should receive uh, her estate. Um, And so I I think that's a a good and fair outcome and probably in line with what uh, she would have wanted. But bear in mind, this poor person passed away in 2016 and here we are sitting in 2022 and we finally have a decision out of the Court of Appeal. Uh, And boy, there could have been a lot of time, litigation, heartache and uncertainty avoided um had she created a will uh and so the real takeaway for anyone listening right is just think about all the people involved and make sure that um you know if you take the time to prepare a will, you may uh, save lots of strife and uncertainty and litigation um and here you know the uh, cost of this litigation is the uh, court of appeal ordered will be payable out of the estate, right, and so all of this time and money has been spent trying to sort out what should happen uh, with this woman's estate, whereas if she had simply prepared a will, all of this could have been avoided. Um, and uh, the, the other takeaway would be, don't try to do it yourself, as we saw in this case as well. What happens, you know, this, this woman had uh, prepared this thing, the Court of Appeal referred to as a testamentary document, sort of her own, uh, setting out her own desires, right? But without all of the formal requirements of a will, right, in terms of witnesses and and so forth, right? So the small amount of money you might uh, pay to hire a lawyer to help you prepare a proper will can save your beneficiaries and family endless heartache, time, expense, and so on. Uh, And I would just uh, urge anyone who's listening who hasn't done that uh, to consider doing it sooner rather than later to avoid just this kind of thing and to make sure that your wishes are uh, honored and you don't have family members and ex-husbands and brothers and sisters and (laughs) everyone uh, fighting over uh, your estate, that may not be what you wanted uh, and the end result may not have been what you intended. And so uh, please get that done. Uh, You'll uh, save a lot of people a lot of grief.
0: The return of near normal After COVID-19, something that we discuss a lot. I know the criminal justice system is likely to stay in hybrid model to some degree for a while. But I'm reading here that we're going to see, does this say a return to normal criminal jury trials in August? We're almost back. Almost back. (laughs) We're
1: doing our best. We're almost back. Um, Now, I should say there are some things which we adopt in the criminal justice system during the course of covid uh, that hopefully will stay because they've turned out just to be generally good and useful time-saving uh advances right like uh we're continuing to use uh, lots of uh, things like MS Teams and so on to uh have virtual proceedings when those are appropriate like sentencings in a lot of cases where there's nobody seeking a jail sentence everyone's agreed that it should be a fine or something right yeah uh are being done by video they're doing bail hearings often now by video that's the default Uh, So you can use judicial time efficiently. There's all kinds of things that have been adopted during the pandemic that uh, hopefully we stick with because they're working pretty well. But some things just don't work that way. One of them being jury trials. That that was perhaps the most challenging thing during the pandemic because you've got people that have to be squeezed together. They've got to deliberate. You've got to choose the jury. Uh, And you've got people that are not there voluntarily, right? You know, in most human affairs, you can make your own call. Hey, do you want to go to the restaurant or are you still feeling a bit skittish, right? Yeah. Um, That's up to you. Uh, But when you're getting a jury notice, that's not up to you. And so uh, uh, we're now returning to an almost normal. So as of August 15th, the B.C. Supreme Court has announced that uh, they're going to be revoking remaining things like uh, courthouse capacity limits and physical distancing requirements. Uh, the wearing of face masks is going to be sort of optional, either up to the individual, subject to the direction from a, a judge. They could yes. say for some reason, let's say you had somebody on the jury who had uh, it was immunocompromised or something, you could have a judge say, no, we're going to require this, right? So it's up to the individual judge. Um, so that's returning, and so that will allow... Uh, jury trials to resume in uh, all of the locations across the province where they used to occur. Uh, They had uh, restricted that because they needed places that were a bit more spaced out. Now, one of the things which at this point is going to continue, uh, which was adopted as part of a uh, COVID protocol, uh, but may have some merit going forward as an efficiency matter, is having this what's referred to as sort of a two-part jury selection process. And the way that way it used to work when you got a notice to show up for jury duty is you would get a notice to show up along with 200 of your closest friends uh, or whatever was needed uh, for jury selection uh, because there could be multiple juries picked on the same day. Yes. And everyone would pile into the courthouse and sit cheek to jowl and then they would draw names out of a, a box at random to determine who the prospective jurors would be. And then they would go through them. You know, is there some reason they can't serve? Do they know the witness? Are they the friend of the accused? What's going on here, right? Is there some challenge? Uh, And so it would require everyone to be there while all that happened. What they've done during COVID and what will stay in a slightly modified form is a two-step process. So the idea is hundreds of jury notices would go out. People would then be required to show up, though, in smaller Uh, show up sort of on one occasion where they would then draw names and determine who are going to be the prospective jurors. Everyone else would then be excused and the people who were drawn and some additional ones in case there was a problem somebody couldn't serve would be asked to come back another day when they would go through that second part of the vetting, determining like, do you know the witnesses? Or are you a friend of the accused? Or is there some reason why you can't do this next week? Whatever it might be to avoid having the crush of people have to show up and all wait around while all that happens and so they're going to stick with that but there'll be a slight modification and that the hope is that they will be able to return to doing that first part of it with the group showing up during the week they were doing that on the weekend um in locations to sort of spread people out to fewer people in the courthouse uh, but uh, as of august 15th they're sticking with the two-stage thing to reduce the amount of time people have to be there uh, but uh, are going to return to doing it during the week. So we're almost back to normal uh, August 15th, and uh, let's hope we don't have a seventh or eighth or ninth wave or whatever it might be. Um, and uh, because, of course, this is an important part of the justice system, and uh, hopefully we get it uh, back on track, uh, preserving some of the things that uh, were uh, invented over COVID, uh, which still seem like a good ideal idea, even without the uh, risk of contagion. Absolutely.
0: Michael Bulligan, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day.